You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. My name's Tim Coe and today's episode is interviewing Dr Laurie Dembo, a cardiologist. Laurie, welcome. Thanks, Tim. It's uh, good to be here and as you can see, I've dressed up for the occasion. You know. <laughs> Thank you, Laurie, and thanks for reading the questions in advance as well. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Laurie, um, tell us a bit more about yourself and tell us about your interest in uh, CT coronary angiogram. Yeah, okay, so um, my job is to be a cardiologist. I did my training in cardiology and then um, a fellowship in echocardiography. I went away and did cardiac MRI as a fellowship at a time when it was really new and novel and um, and then um, came back to Perth and started doing two jobs at the same time. One which is my clinical job where I um, now run the cardiac transplant service uh, for the state. So clinical cardiology with real people and the real clinical questions that it is that you have to deal with every day. And then started an imaging practice called Envision Medical Imaging where we do most of the outpatient cardiac imaging um, CT, CA and cardiac MRI in the state. A lot of people wouldn't know what CT, CA involves when they're referring a patient. It's a little bit more than just having a CT, isn't it? So do you want to just explain the procedure of what happens to a patient with a CT, sure. CA? Sure. Let me go back a step. So CT, CA stands for CT coronary angiography. And there's two bits of the, to the test in the way that we do them. One bit is what's called a uh, coronary calcium score. That's been around for a little while. And then CT coronary angiography, which is a bit more depth to it. To understand the, how the tests work a little bit, you kind of need to understand a little about why you do them. So when you've got coronary artery disease, the disease is an inflammatory process. And over time, as with all inflammation, you can get scars. That scar within the coronary arteries is, gets bits of calcium in it. And so the original way to look at coronary artery disease was a bit like doing a standard CT, you know, in and out, you just take off your shirt and through the scanner you go and you, you see the calcium um, in the same way when you sh- as if shining a torch on a mirror, you get a glare back from the CT scanner and we can count that up and give an, a, a score. That was the calcium score. Over time, though, what we realised is that the disease in the earlier stages or in the stages where it causes a problem for the patient is when, when you're in the active inflammation stage, so before the calcification. The problem with the calcium score on its own is it doesn't see within the lumen of the arteries. It only sees the scar. And so over time, this technique was developed where with the use of intravenous contrast, so you put a drip into the, into the arm, usually it's a, um, a 16 gauge cannula, and through that you inject CT contrast, and you do a contrast CT with an ECG dots on, gated to the time when the heart is at the most still, so usually in diastole. We use a spray of, um, of GTN under the tongue to make the arteries as big as possible. Obviously, if there's a fixed stenosis, they stay narrow there. And then we can look inside the wall of the artery and actually see early plaque, and also, in some cases, some stenosis, if that, if that exists. So I guess a lot of GPs would be asking, well, where does CTCA fit into the spectrum of cardiac investigations? You can't see this, um, people listening, but I'm nodding, because it's the, it's the exact question that people are asking. And it's a very simple question with a lot of nuance to it, because where it fits for a cardiologist might be different to where it fits for a government trying to look at a population because every test has a cost Mm. and how you fit those two things in what's best for the patient who's sitting in front of you and who pays for that in a system where you can't have every test becomes the real difficulty in this so i'm not going to answer the question as a government i'm going to ask it as someone who sits in front of me what's the role of 
of an anatomical test for a patient in front of me. And there's two different scenarios, really. There's the asymptomatic patient, and then there's the patient with symptoms. So what you want in any test is good sensitivity and good specificity. And if you think about it, from in the old days, what you do is you do just a treadmill stress test. That's a test that really almost no cardiologist does anymore because the sensitivity and specificity for that are very low. So let's talk first about the, the patient with some symptoms. This is how I see it. It's a personal view and some of it is backed up by data and some of it there is no data for because the test doesn't have 20 or 25 year data yet. It's just not there. So I think it goes like this. If every time you move your shoulder, it hurts your shoulder, that's a problem with your shoulder, no matter how worried the person is. If every time you go for a walk, you get central retrosternal crushing chest pain that goes up your neck and down your arm, well, that's pretty easy too. That needs a a cardiologist and direct angiography because that's where the bang for your buck is. The problem is, and you know it and I know it, is that that's not most people. Most events, cardiac events, happen in people at intermediate risk and most people have these symptoms that, well, maybe they're a bit more short of breath or sometimes they're getting symptoms. It's very vague and that's the problem with cardiac pain, right, is that, you know, it's only 15 or 20% of the time do you get central retrosternal chest pain that goes up your neck and down your arm. So what do you do for that middle group? What are the options? You can do a functional test, so um, a stress echo or what we we used to call a thallium scan, which we now probably call a myocardial perfusion scan because there's different elements. Or you could do a treadmill test, I suppose, or even a PET scan. What those tests do is they say, in summary, if you've got a fixed luminal stenosis in the coronary artery and beyond that stenosis you um, create ischemia, then either by looking at an ECG or looking at wall motion with stress echo or looking at where a tracer goes with myocardial perfusion scan, you can kind of impute whether that person's got a fixed luminal stenosis. And that's kind of been the standard way until CTC came along. And really, if you'd asked me this question 10 years ago, I would have stopped there and said, well, why would you need an anatomical test? Because it's all about function. I, I don't think that that's right anymore because as our understanding of coronary artery disease has moved on, what we understand is that it's a systemic inflammatory disease involving the arteries, a bit like acne to some extent where you've got a bunch of pimples and and which one pops and which one doesn't pop is a kind of a random event. So in fact two-thirds of heart attacks do not happen on a tight arterial narrowing. They happen because you get a small soft plaque that ruptures, the the oxidized lipid within that plaque is seen by the blood and the blood forms a clot. In other words it's not the size of the narrowing, it's the size of the clot. And usually that clot comes and goes, comes and goes. There was a great study in circulation where they looked at people um, and, and with some pretty high-tech stuff, looked at the nature of the plaques. And essentially, it's about two-thirds of people, if they'd had an angiogram the day before their heart attack, their angiogram would not have been something that you would have gone, oh, this person needs an angioplasty. They might need aspirin and a statin and that treatment for systemic disease, but they didn't have a tight luminal stenosis. And so here's the problem. If you don't have a tight luminal stenosis, then a stress test will be normal. That's just physics. You need an 80% narrowing to get a, a reduction in flow down a vessel. And so if you have a normal stress test, and this assumes 100% sensitivity and specificity, of which they do not have, then if you don't have a stenosis, then the test will be normal. And your stress echo is normal. And you say, you're fine, but you just sent away someone who may have no coronary disease, or they may have a lot of coronary disease, and you can't know. And you can't know based on risk factors. The only way you know is by looking. And so in my mind, what I like to do, and what, and what the government's actually set up you know, currently is a very sensible, bizarrely enough, um, MBS way of doing things, except for the who can refer. So what they've said is for intermediate risk patients, 
You can refer for a CTCA if you're a specialist and get a Medicare rebate, but not if you're a GP. That's dumb, right? I mean, really, why do you need to send someone to a specialist to send them for the test when you can ask the same questions and you've got the person sitting in front of you? Regardless of what the government says we're going to pay for it, or which is the best way to pay for it, the CTCA is, for me, the test of first choice. Now, I have all the tests available in our imaging practice. We have CTCA and we have stress nuclear perfusion imaging through the hospitals. You can get um, PET. You can get whatever test you want. So why do I go for an anatomical test first? The answer to that is because in advance you can, you can tell the patient and you know for yourself what you're going to do. So if the test is normal, its specificity and sensitivity are in the high 99s. To give you some idea, stress echo for an LAD lesion, left anterior descending, it's about 80%. Right For a circumflex, it's 70 or even 60%. So with high sensitivity and specificity, you can say the coronary arteries do not have significant disease or they have no disease. So no disease is easy. The other beauty of CT is that you know you can also see in 8 to 15% of the time the hiatus hernia or the pneumonia or the cancer or, or the liver lesion or the other things that might be causing the pain because from the patient's point of view, they didn't say, tell me my coronaries are normal. They said, what's my pain? So CT's normal, you're done. And that's the majority of cases. The next group are people that have disease. And in that group, there's three separate cases. There's the people that have a tight luminal stenosis. And for those people, they need a cardiologist and an invasive angiogram or an angioplasty. I think that invasive procedure should be for therapeutic and not diagnostic use. And so though those people go, they have their angiogram and always, almost always have an angioplasty at the same time. The test is almost always correct. So that's the people with severe disease. Then there's the people with mild irregular disease everywhere. Remember, that's not someone with no disease. That disease is the disease that kills more than half the population. So at least to my mind, that's the group that you treat. And you treat that group with aspirin, statin, and meticulous risk factor control and a really strong push towards aerobic exercise, which probably gives you the best bang for your buck out of all the things that I just mentioned. Now, there's no data for that. No one's yet looked at CTs and said, what do we do if we treat that group for 20 or 30 years? It's going to be very hard to get that data. And, and I want you all to imagine, for example, you have your own CT, um, everyone listening to this. And in that, on that CT, we show a, a 40% um, luminal stenosis of your LAD, soft plaque, no calcium. So what do you do? We're going to put you in a trial. Half the people will get aspirin statin. Other half will get no therapy. Will you go in that trial? Of course you won't, right? And because of that, it's going to be hard to get data. But we all think that if you've got coronary artery disease, it's best to lower your lipid profile. It's best to be, it's at least best to keep meticulous risk factor control. And then there's one more group. So a lot of disease, easy. Moderate or a small amount of disease, easy. What happens if you've got a 60 to 80% luminal stenosis on CT? Now, CT is not great in that group. We don't know if functionally that's a significant lesion or it's not. But there is a test that will tell you if a, if a luminal stenosis is functionally significant. And that's the stress testing we were talking about. That's how they work. And so I think that that's the group that should go on for functional testing. CTCA plus a calcium score will give you, um, do you have disease or not? If you have diseases a lot, a little or in the middle. If you've got disease in the middle, stress test because a stress test is either positive or not. And if it's positive, onto direct angiography and angioplasty. If it's not, treat medically. And for me, that's an easy way to understand how it fits in. So intermediate risk patients yep. with symptomatic disease and uh, then you stratify them according to their results. Exactly right, Tim. It's a, it's a risk stratification for the person that you just don't know. And the one thing that I've learned now in, in, in 20 years of cardiology is it doesn't matter how experienced you are. For most people, the only way to know if you've got coronary disease is to look at their coronaries. You just... 
all the, the risk factors and 25% of people, you know, in a recent study that, were, that was on the ABC website, so it's, you know, published in proper journals and picked up by newspapers, those people did not have modifiable risk factors. The people that we see in coronary care are, are 45 to 65 now. The events happen suddenly. Mm. I'm not saying risk factors are to be discounted, but I am saying that when you look at type 2 diabetics, and if you've got a 60-year-old type 2 diabetic, even if they're hypertensive, about a quarter of them have disease, a lot, a quarter of them have no disease, and a bit in the middle have both. How do you know which is which? You can't know till you look. We just have to get over it. And what about the asymptomatic yeah, Much A much more vexed group, and once again, I'm just going to say this really clearly. Please listen to this bit. There are no guidelines about this. This is a personal opinion, and, and the government, to some degree, has got it right. They've said, look, there's no data at all really about this group other than what I'll, I'll share with you in a moment. And so we're not going to put an item number for that group. If you want the test, you can pay for it yourself. And maybe that's how government should work. So here's my take on asymptomatic patients. Um, what we know is that most heart attacks do not happen in the high-risk patient group. And that is the people you're thinking of, hypertensive, hypercholesterolemic, hyperlipidemics, whatever, you know, smokers. That's about 25% of the total population the problem is that at least 50% of the population are intermediate risk, and even though the risk per patient is less, overall, most patients are intermediate risk. So what do you want to do? Do you want to wait for the person to have an event in a disease that kills more than half the population? Or wouldn't you do what you do for every disease except heart disease, which is look for the disease? There's no other disease that you look for the risk factor and then treat it. If you've got a risk for breast cancer, you know, other than for the, the gene versions of it, we don't say we're going to give you chemotherapy. We look to see if you've got cancer. If you've got cancer, we treat it. Same with heart disease. We've just, we're living in a 1960s model where we, we look at someone's cholesterol and decide whether they've got the disease or not. Cholesterol makes cells. Cholesterol in itself isn't bad. If you've got the wrong genetics and you make plaque, that's bad. So here's my take on asymptomatic patients. I think that there's some debate as to what the right time is. None of the risk calculators involve family history. If you've got a strong family history, everyone in your family dies when they're 40, what are you waiting to 60 to know whether you've got the disease or not, right? Regardless of what your cholesterol is. And by the way, 80% of people who have a heart attack have the same level of cholesterol as people who don't have a heart attack. Risk factors aren't good to discriminate. Um, unless they're very high or very low. If you've got a strong family history, I think that pushes you early. My take is somewhere between 50 and 60, probably, if it was me, that's when I would be looking to have my test. In the same way as a colonoscopy, in the sense, you know, because you can't see the disease. Now, why that number? I kind of made it up a little bit. Maybe if you're younger and you got the disease earlier, that would be better. That's true, but then you get a lot more normal scans. Maybe if you're older, you'd get more abnormal ones. So I think that's a pretty good range for you know a population that most people now in the 40s are going to be living till they're 80 or 90. And, and I do think you need a long lead in time with statins and lifestyle interventions to make a change. But personal take only. So what you're saying is you're operating in murky territory and you're really taking a guess. And, and if you're relying on the risk factor basis for assessment, it's pretty murky. You know... There's a lot of talk about risk factors and the absolute risk factor calculators. I mean, for me, number one, they all underestimate disease in women. You know, the number one killer of women is heart disease, more than all the cancers put together, you know. Mm. The number one killer in men is cardiovascular disease. 
why aren't we looking for the disease? Why are we spending... And people say, you know, oh, we know it's an expensive test. Well, so is doing someone's cholesterol every year. Someone's, so is a doctor's visit for hypertension and a bunch of other risk factors, an HbA1c. They're all worthwhile, but they all add up. What you want to do is stop the disease that kills the most number of people. And the way that you do that is know that you've got disease and I think treat it early. Now, how you treat it, which I think is mostly you know, lifestyle intervention and involvement in a bigger level with the person in their lifestyle, is much harder. But if, how do you know that until you're treating someone, until you see the disease? Um, so that's the input of who should go into having the test. Mm. Let's talk about the output now. Mm-hmm. So you detect coronary artery disease that's mm-hmm. asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. What's the evidence for treating asymptomatic disease? Yeah, I wish you wouldn't ask that. The evidence is hard to know. So let me put it to you the other way. If you look at risk factors, so for example, most people would want to treat someone who's got a cholesterol of 6, that would give you a risk of times 1.5 normal, hypertension, blood pressure 140, 150, a risk of times 1.5, add them up so it's all multiply them, it's a risk of times 3 or times 4, add a bit of smoking and your risk is times 5, times 6, right? So when you look at all those risk factors, they give you a risk 6 times the normal population. If you take a bunch of 50 to 70-year-olds asymptomatic through the door and you look at their calcium scores, for the ones who have a calcium score greater than, say, 100, their risk is times 10. That's more than all the risk factors combined. So what's the evidence that says you should treat these people? No one's done the trial yet that says, we looked at these, we treated these people, we saw what happened. Very hard trial to do. But no one's done the trial for echo and heart failure, nor for parachutes and jumping out of planes right the trial is going to be really hard to do what we know oh by the way the reason that the calcium score on its own is a better predictor than all the risk factors combined is that it's not a risk factor it's the disease obviously the people with disease will have events so what's the evidence there is none be very clear about that and it might be that i'm wrong it might be that this is a very good idea just like thalidomide was a good idea but it does make intuitive sense that the person who'll do best with treatment of the disease is someone who has the disease, as opposed to someone who has the risk of the disease. Because we've all seen it. You've all seen Uncle Johnny who smokes, has high cholesterol, hypertension, and is having his great 100th birthday celebration. Everyone knows that because that's what their patients say. Why? Because risk factors aren't the disease. In 50 or 100 years, we'll laugh at this and say, look, you know, we turned off the gene. You guys were crazy back then. But until then, we just have to separate what we got taught, which are risk factors are the disease from what's reality which is the disease is the disease and risk factors are things that can help as a population but as an individual aren't so great a few more practical questions for for people who you would do a ctca on mm-hmm. say you do it and it's normal mm-hmm. um in someone say age 60 how long does that mean they're good for in terms of you know what kind of reassurance does that provide you? so for this there is some data tim and so and, and that's always put in the in, put in the journals as warranty in inverted commas in fact i even report as the warranty so if you've got a plum normal normal calcium score normal ctca the warranty is said to be 10 years now that must be age dependent to a bit right if you're 40 and you've got a normal ctca that's clearly different if you're 70 and your ctca is normal you never have to do the test again if you're, if you're 40, we say it's 5 to 10 years, probably it's 10 years. The flip side is also true, though, so that once you've got an abnormal study, in my opinion, there is no real need to repeat that study. And Tim and I have talked about this off tape. Do people even know what a tape is anymore? No. <laughs> off digital recording. Um, 
once you once you've got the disease, we know that currently the therapy is aspirin, statin, controlled risk factors, and exercise. So having another test doesn't change that. I think that any test should change management. And so, what's the warranty? Five to ten years. Once you've had the test and you've got disease, as an asymptomatic person, then I don't treat them again. If this becomes symptomatic and it's different, then it depends a bit. If it's really obviously symptomatic, then they're back in that other group, cardiology. A lot of people are, who knows? A CTCA or functional test. Uh, and say you do the test and you pick up a bit of calcium or, or whatnot, mm-hmm. is it worth repeating that, do you think? Or? Yeah, I, so there's some data. Now, most of this comes from American groups who absolutely uh, want to maximise billing, right? By the way, I would love to maximise billing as well, but to do it in a way that's good for the populace. There's plenty of people with heart disease and you know anyone in images and tests can make a good living without having to uh, fleece the population. My take on that is, again, once you see the disease, there's no point in repeating it. The Americans have said, if your calcium score goes up by more than 15% per year, you're at a higher risk than if it's less than 15% per year. And that's probably true. Currently, well, what are you going to do with that data? Now, when the next um, generation of anti-lipid drugs come, that might be different. But if you're not going to change what you do, everyone's on the high-dose statin in my world, at least. Mm. So once you're on a statin, you get them to the highest dose. They're on aspirin and they're exercising. Well, whatever the test shows, there's nothing new to it. So I, I don't repeat them yet. And say if you've got a patient who wouldn't consider taking a statin, is it worthwhile even considering doing the test, you think, or...? We know that the tests, if you see disease, can provoke anxiety and increase hospital admissions. We know that. If the test is not going to change your management, then I don't think it's worthwhile. In saying that, and it is a group that we've looked at in some detail, a lot of those people tend to change their minds. If, um, they know if, it's there. Yeah. And, 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 and I suppose vice versa. If your cholesterol's eight and we say your coronaries are normal, well, if this podcast was with a neurologist, they would say, are you crazy? Yeah. Who cares what their coronaries are like? You still have to protect their head. So I think once you're in the very high-risk group and they're getting treated anyway, I don't test them unless they're symptomatic. Thanks for talking about CTCA and the, the role it plays. Uh, that's the end of the podcast. Mm-hmm.